Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Coming to you from fabulous Las Vegas. The right side is the winning side. The late move is the correct move. Sports betting capital of the world. We all know when a sharp like me weighs in, the lines move. It's a party for your ears. (laughs) This is The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. I want to buy that guy a buffet. Wow, wow, wow. Welcome to The Buffet Podcast with Chad and Scooch, part of the Action Network. I am Chad Millman on the phone with me from the Orleans and all the Boyd Gaming books in the state of Nevada. Bob Scoochie, my man Scooch. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you, Chad? I'm good. So you and I are going to recap a Super Bowl, which was epic in every single way from a betting perspective, uh, from a game perspective. Uh, later on in the show, Matt Moore, Hardwood Paroxysm, the lead NBA analyst for the Action Network, is going to come on because there is crazy, crazy stuff to talk about in the NBA with, you know, the piston streaking and the Cavs, a fundamental mess on the floor, on the board. Um, really amazing to see this this collapse. The Lakers are the hottest team in the NBA right now. So. Uh, Matt's going to come on, and we're going to talk about all the NBA stuff from a betting perspective. But first, Scooch, are you hungover? How do you feel? The Super Bowl, biggest Super Bowl Sunday in from a betting handle perspective in Nevada history. <coughs> well, um, well, I'll tell you, every year, regardless of the results of the Super Bowl, regardless of how it goes, there's there's a kind of an empty void. Uh, that that kind of comes with the end of the football season. It probably takes a couple of weeks before you kind of get back into the swing of the sports book and and you know focus on college hoops and NBA. But uh, regardless of the results, there's there's always that hangover. I mean, literally, you feel like a hangover without the headache. Uh, it came in. I came in Monday morning and kind of doing all the recaps and getting all the the numbers together for for the gaming control board so that they can report. Uh, on the win loss and everything, and uh, yeah, de- definitely the, the the week after the Super Bowl is a rough one. Yeah, the uh, I, I feel the same way. You know, we the Action Network did a live stream over Twitter on uh, pregame show, in-game show, and post-game show. We had a lot of a lot of viewers. Like combined, the shows had like crazy amounts of viewers, um, and. We were, I was like, and then, you know, after the show, we, after the game and after the show is wrapped, we go downstairs, we have a drink, whatever. Then I'm up early in the morning. I'm writing a newsletter for Action Network. Subscribe to the newsletter at actionnetwork.com. And like, I am beat, man. I could barely function last night. I finally got home from the city and I could, I couldn't move. Yeah. I mean, days later, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you would think after a couple of days and getting a good night's rest that you'd still feel that you'd feel okay, but you don't. I mean, even last night, so we're talking about Tuesday, a couple of days after the game, and I was still just not myself. And um, you know, like I said, it, it takes a good week, and and so we still got a few more days to go to kind of feel normal after. You know, you get such a fever pitch leading up to the game, and like I said, it culminates an entire season where you get into this routine where. 
Sunday, you know, you have all the games, you post the numbers for the following week, you gear up during the week, you put the parlay cards together, you gear up for the weekend, and then like after each Sunday, there's a little bit of a breather, and then you get back into that routine again. And after that final Super, you know, the, the final game, the Super Bowl, you're still looking for that same routine, and it's gone, and and that kind of takes some getting used to. Did uh. You know, you mentioned getting the numbers together for the Nevada Gaming Control Board. They reported that the handle in Nevada for this Super Bowl was $158 million. That was $20 million than the previous year, which had been $6 million than the previous year. That is a massive increase, Scooch. Uh, Did you notice that during the game? Did you notice more money coming in than you had in years past? Um. I didn't notice the, the, the big difference. And I think, you know, one of the things that the gaming control board does not report is the number of tickets written. And I, I would really be curious to see that as an indicator of how many more people are actually wagering. You know, it's hard it, It's hard to kind of, I mean, obviously it's a record in terms of handle, but, you know, if you have one guy that's betting 10 million, then yeah, that's going to affect the handle. So, and then that's also going to affect if you, if you take ten million from one guy that didn't bet the previous year, and then you move the line to get money on the other side, then that theoretically could become twenty million, and there's the twenty million difference uh, from from year to year. So, uh, but but it always seems busy. I mean, when you're running at capacity, it's hard to tell the difference of. You know how much busier it is. You you have every window open. You have all hands on deck. You're just packed. All your properties are packed. So it always seems, it always seems busy. You're obviously referring to this guy, Better X. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when that's happening in Vegas, how are bookmakers reacting? Are there like calls going around town? Hey, this guy just came in and hit me for a million. Or like, how how does the word get out? I don't think the bookmakers themselves really uh, are, are talk about it much. I think the word gets out, you know, the somebody inside that either took the bet or the or was near the counter when they heard about the bet being made, and word gets out pretty quick. And then usually one of them, somebody in the media, will call up and say, "Hey, we heard reports that, you know, you took this big bet. You know, can you confirm it?" And you know, depending on the operator, they'll either confirm it or not comment on it. But uh, but, you know. Typically, the word gets out through kind of the grapevine, but not necessarily from the bookmaker. Uh, occasionally, the bookmaker will want to share and say, "Yeah, we just took a, a million dollar bet or a two million dollar bet," and you know that's up to the operator the, to share that information or not. What do you get by sharing it versus not sharing it? I, I guess a little publicity, but I I, I was always maybe just kind of close to the vest. I, I don't really want to share the exact wagers that I'm taking, and particularly if they're from people that don't really want to other people to know that they're betting those large amounts. You know, I, I've, I've had kind of high-profile uh, individuals want to make large wagers, and I, I don't think they'd really appreciate uh, me going out about and, and saying who they are and you know how much they're betting on the game. You know, if it's up to them, if they want to share that information that's up to them you know in years past uh, obviously floyd mayweather has you know posted some of his wagers and and uh that that's up to the the individual but you know not everyone wants to be that public so better x is coming around he's allegedly betting and and i say allegedly not because he doesn't exist just because the the totals are hard to pin down um right you know, upwards of say seven million dollars on the Super Bowl spread out about town, and all of it on the Eagles. That guy cashes some seriously, seriously big tickets. That could be where a preponderance of sort of the added handle comes from when you're talking about that increase from one thirty-eight to one fifty-eight. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, there's kind of a ripple effect in that, you know, you take a big wager on one side and you try to balance the action a little bit and maybe you move the line a little bit lower than you would normally uh, move it to. So, for example, you know, if the guy did bet, let's say, the Eagles on the money line and he took, uh, you know, plus 170, which was, you know, what it was at one time. And then later on in the in the week, uh, the, the casino lowers it 
so much to get Patriots money that maybe they lower it to minus one seventy just to get money on the other side. And you know, they're they're kind of there's not much earn there because you got one guy taking plus one seventy and you got another one laying one seventy. But at least you're trying to balance some of the action out, and maybe that's where a lot of that additional handle comes from. Uh, I've experienced it in the past when our company has acquired a new property. And let's say you know we, we acquire a new casino that we didn't have the prior year. Not only did we get the handle, the additional handle from that property, but also the handle increases at our old properties as well because maybe we're taking a you know $100,000 wager on this game here. We move the line and now we're taking additional handle at our other properties. So uh, you, you get that kind of ripple effect. I was really encouraged by the 158. I, it actually didn't even occur to me that it could be from better acts until you mentioned, yeah, there could be one guy betting $7 million around town and that makes up about 50% of the you know, potentially increased handle. Um, because I just love the idea that people are getting more and more active about betting. Do you get well, any, sen- any sense yeah. of that from the book this weekend? Yeah, absolutely. So I think another element of the increased handle was the added uh, features on a lot of mobile apps that allow in-game wagering. Uh, I, I, From talking to some of the other uh, bookmakers in town... The, the, the properties that did pretty well, not pretty well, but better than other properties on the on the game, uh, accounted for it by saying uh, that they won on the in-progress wagering. So in other words, the books that did okay on the game made up, made up for it with a lot of Patriots money in-game wagering. Uh, and that element didn't exist five years ago or even four years ago in a lot of places. So the fact that more and more casinos are getting this on the app uh, is creating more betting opportunities. Uh, you know, we tried something that we never did before, and we actually put up second-half player prop wagering uh, at halftime. Uh, you know, with the ex- with the extended halftime of the Super Bowl, it allowed us a little bit of time to put together Tom Brady's total passing yards for just the second half, Nick Foles' passing yards for just the second half, total number of points scored, just all the same props that you would see pregame, we put them up at halftime, and I was surprised at how much action we got on it. I mean, we just threw them up there in a matter of four or five minutes, and they had about 30 minutes to bet it, and they just pounded a lot of those propositions. So uh, all all new wagering opportunities, an expanded betting menu, all that contributes to, you know, added popularity in sports betting. There's more sports books than there ever were. They're they're still popping up. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's real encouraging for for sports betting. What is the biggest bet you took during the Super Bowl? Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to share that. Uh, but Why, Scooch? I'm not good. asking you to say I, who. I, I just, it's I, over. I, I know, but I'm not. Was I'm not it gonna... was it more or less than seven figures? You've told me when you've had like big six figure bets before. Well, sometimes I'm able to share it and sometimes I'm not. But uh, it, it was less than seven figures. I'm going to take that to be high six figures then. And so um, what what bet did you lose? What was the best outcome for you for this game? The best outcome would have been the Patriots covering the spread. Actually, if they were to cover the spread by a, a 12 and cover teasers and the game stay under. So the absolute best score would have been 27 to 10. That, that would have been the ultimate. We probably would have held about 25% uh, for the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, the next obvious, uh, any kind of Patriots covering would have been the next best scenario with the game staying under. Um, even if the Patriots won the game outright and still flew over the way it did. So even sitting when it was at 33, 32, uh, that would have been okay. It would have been, it wouldn't have been great, but just a huge difference from uh, the Eagles winning the game outright the way they did and and flying over the way it did. Boy. So really, the worst thing that could possibly happen was happening. Like the Eagles winning outright and it going over. The Yeah, the only thing would have been a little worse is if the under teasers came into play. So in other words, 56 and a half points was right around the, the number where people were betting the Eagles plus 11 and a half and under 56 and a half in a two-team teaser. And 
it, it would have been possible for all four teaser combinations to come in uh, if you know the Eagles had won by let's say one or two and the game hovered around 55 56 that would have been an even worse outcome than what we saw right now so this is probably the second worst that could have happened um, yeah I feel bad for you about that <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you do I'm sure everybody does you know I was very vocal very vocal in our pregame um, show that people could watch at Action Network HQ on Twitter, and you can still follow us at Action Network HQ on Twitter, um, that the Eagles are going to win this game outright. I'm like, the Eagles are going to cover. The Eagles are going to win this game outright. They're a better team. I thought they uh, matched up really well. I thought Nick Foles, largely because of the conversation you and I had had, um, was just a much better quarterback than he was being given credit for from a point spread perspective by the bookmakers. Clearly you guys made a mistake in this game. And um, so I was thrilled to see it. Uh, I also won my under bet on the national anthem because I was originally on the over and very vocal that I was on the over. But the day before, there were all those rumors about Pink having the flu and her rehearsal times were leaked. So I knew that she had rehearsed between 150 and 154. And so I went all in on the under. I had Nelson Aguilar over 42 and a half yards. Um, that was a big one for me. The Action Network went 29, 20, and 3 in the 52 props that we had written about um, during the week up to the Super Bowl. So you would have won a, a bunch of coin by following Action Network there. And we had our leans on the Patriots to cover um, on the over, which was our best bet from our Sports Insights algorithm. I mean, we nailed it. Like it's, yeah. it's like you are lucky that we did not spend all of our time in the Orleans Sportsbook because we would have uh, – we don't avoid gaming right now. <laughs> you know, well, I feel fortunate about that. <laughs> how, did, uh, how did our right side as the winning side prop – by Arash Sadat do. Our, our well, prop winner, Arash Sadat, how did that one do? Well, we, we got a lot of uh, handle on it, a lot of interest in it. And as he predicted and as we talked about, more people bet yes that there would be uh, more yards from scrimmage from the team that won the game. And it was like minus $1.60 and it did not win. As he kind of pointed out, a lot of times the losing team ends up with more yards from scrimmage. So um, we, we did okay on the prop and it went about as we expected. I, I really like that prop. That's a great prop. You're going to have to use that again next year. Yeah, we probably will. You know, we, we've been doing this for, you know, like you said, I don't know, 10 years. And a lot of times there's a prop that kind of works and we use it for three or four years following uh, the, the year that it won the contest. So uh, I think that's one of them that'll stick around. What was the handle on that prop? We wrote probably about a uh, little over 20,000 on that prop. No way. Yeah. yeah. You wrote 20,000 in tickets on the get your prop up in Vegas winning prop. Yeah. Yeah. A ton of action on that one. I mean, and it was really. Money. And we won a little money on that one. Yeah. One of the few props that we won money on. What <laughs> prop? You. Yeah. You well, got killed on props. Like props. Well, because was, everything went over. Everything went over. Everyone, yes. You know, everyone bets, yes, Gronkowski will score. Yes, uh, Amendola will score. And yes, it'll go over the yardage, over this. Oh, everyone bets over. Everybody bets, yes, they'll be scoring. And in a high-scoring game with over 1,100 yards, yeah, there's going to be a lot of those props coming in. But I'll tell you, the worst one, and it was kind of a, a double-edged sword because of what we were rooting for, it was the end of the, sec it was the, end of the first half. And one of our biggest props was, will there be a score in the last two minutes of the first half? And we had a ton of money on the no, meaning everyone's betting that there would not be a, a scoring play in the last two minutes of the first half. So here we are. We're rooting for any kind of score, whether it's a field goal, a touchdown. I, we didn't care. We just wanted somebody to score in the last two minutes of the first half. So here the Eagles are, and they're at the the one and, and you know, we're hoping for them to kick the field goal which they don't they, they line up and uh that they they th throw that play and before we realized that nick Foles caught the touchdown 
we just were like elated that, oh, yes, we got the score. We won that prop. And then we realized who scored the touchdown. And that was one of the worst props that could have happened because Nick Foles was like six to one, seven to one to score a touchdown. And we got annihilated on that. So whatever we saved on the prop we were rooting for, we lost that and double on Nick Foles scoring the touchdown. That last 90 seconds of the first half was insane because you had the um, – I think there was a prop. Will there be more uh, than two people throwing passes in the game? Yeah. And so that happened. You had Nick Foles to score a touchdown, which in some places was 8-1. to one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that also helped hit the first half over maybe. Um, or maybe it hit a first half over for total points by the Eagles. I can't remember, but something there was in play. Like right. in the last 90 seconds, um, it was it was insanity. It was total yeah, insanity. There, there was a flurry of just all the uh, the props hitting in the last couple minutes of that first half. There's so many props in play uh, right up until you know the last second. It was really fun. As a better, it was really really fun. Yeah, you know, it's really odd for me to try and be objective about it because, you know, I did a lot of shows on Monday following the Super Bowl and maybe it was a little too fresh in my mind, but it, it was obviously the not, the not the best outcome for us and it was really disappointing from, from our end. So to kind of say it was one of the greatest games of all time, you real, I really – it's too close to the game right now for me to say that maybe three or four years down the road when i look back on it i'll say yeah it was an exciting game but uh, uh you know right now I, I, in my mind it was a terrible game <laughs> <laughs> um what uh what what shows were you doing uh, a lot of local ones. Uh, there's a couple of local sports talk shows that uh, i've been doing regularly for the last couple of years and um and did one in the morning and one at night and kind of the same questions as you know wasn't it the most exciting the greatest game of all time and i'm like not from where i sit you know i gotta take that bookmaker hat off maybe and just kind of rewatch it as just a football fan and uh, it it kind of reminds me of the patriots panthers if you remember that super bowl where it was kind of a low scoring first half but then it just blew up in the second half and it was back and forth back and forth and uh, but that one we were kind of on the right side of so i still think of that as being one of the most exciting super bowls uh you know i i guess it, it just depends on the outcome of the game and who you need for you to say whether it was a, a great game or not not coincidentally, that's the last time Justin Timberlake made an appearance at the halftime show. Was that the one with the Janet Jackson? Yeah, that was Nipplegate. <clears throat> I was wondering about that because you know I, I I was so busy during halftime I missed the entire halftime show with you know typical, but I was putting up all these props and booking the halftime and everything else and uh, but I, I heard it was a decent halftime show. You got to make money, man. You can't be you know watching JT. When you got props to post and money to make and bets to take, hey, did yeah. um, did you meet Arash Sadat, the winner of our contest? Because he was coming to Vegas for the bachelor party that he was going to be attending, and he was supposed to come get his buffet and take a picture of the prop on the board. I did not, unfortunately. I don't. I I didn't hear of him asking for me. If he did, I apologize. But uh, I was here, and I met a lot of uh, folks that have come here in the past uh, that listen to the podcast pretty regularly. I was able to uh, talk to a few of them. Uh, I, w- I was out front as much as I could be, and uh, but unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to hook up with them. Mm. Too bad, yeah. Did you? So at the end of the day, did you win or lose in the Super Bowl? Uh, the, we broke almost exactly even. Which is a big loss, you know, considering that you're supposed to win money on the Super Bowl. So yeah, that's that's your Super Bowl. Yep. I mean, uh, the whole state. I, th- I think the final figure was point zero seven hold percentage, which by any state, yeah, oh, it was, you think about you know spreading it over uh, uh, two hundred sports books. Uh, you know, what does that amount to? <laughs> uh, well, not, can't the, can't really the pay the bills. State, the entire state. Uh, the hold was $1.17 million on a $158 million bet spread over 200 books. Yeah. So it's like 2000 a book. Yeah, that's about right. That's about what we did. <laughs> yeah. It's like you yeah. really nobody made any money on this Super Bowl. It's kind of insane. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you, typical of any Super Bowl, you start wondering what you could have done differently, how you could have, um, you know, booked it a little differently. But we made up, we made our minds up early on that we weren't going to try and manipulate the way people were already inclined to bet. So we knew early on they were going to be betting the Eagles. So, you know, there was nothing we could do to put us in a position where we were going to have a great Super Bowl if the Eagles won. So it's just a matter of how much we want to get get back on on the Patriots late um, to kind of mitigate some of the the, the, the loss. But there, you know, we we talked about it last week. We were the first place in town to go to four on the game. We saw the early Eagles money. So in my mind, you know, we actually saved. I know you don't like to hear this, but we actually saved a little money because we went to four before anybody in town and you know if people were still betting the eagles at that point they were going to be grabbing plus four and a half plus five um you know there's only so much you can do to kind of steer the way people are going to be inclined to bet big tony big tony i'm such a good bookmaker you can't believe you can't believe how much money we would have lost if i wasn't such a good bookmaker that's true i mean it really is true all right Scooch, listen uh this was officially a great season, and yeah. um, now we got to start thinking about college basketball. We got to start thinking about the NBA. Um, yep. You know, uh, we got to get Alan Boston back on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe he'll join both of us. How would you feel about okay. that? Okay. I, I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be. I won't have to talk much. The enthusiasm is overwhelming. <laughs> I love Alan. I miss Alan. All right, we're going to work on that for next week. Okay, all right. We'll have to muster up the courage. All right, Scooch, great season. Thanks very much. Everybody stick around because we have, coming up next, Matt Moore, lead NBA analyst for the Action Network at Hardwood Paroxysm. He's going to come on. We're going to talk about everything happening in the National Drama Association. Trade deadline coming up. Uh, playoff seedings in peril. All the stuff you need to know to be a smarter, better, um, and a better fan with Matt Moore coming right up. Joining me now on the buffet, lead NBA analyst for the Action Network, longtime NBA reporter at Hardwood Paroxysm, uh, Twitter fame, creator of the blog at Har- uh, of the blog Hardwood Paroxysm. Matt Moore, what's going on, buddy? A lot. A lot is going on and I'm trying to keep track of of all the stuff that's going on. It's been it's pretty uh, crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's- not as crazy as it could be. It's probably going to get a little crazy in the next 24 hours is is what I would say. It's going to get even crazier. But, yeah, it's been busy. Here's what seems crazy to me is this morning uh, the Action Network newsletter that went out. We had a, um, a sort of 14 things you're hearing in the last 36 hours before the trade deadline. We had a NBA mega betting guide for the slate that's going on tonight that includes – um, the Pistons, it includes the Cavs, it includes the Rockets, and then you had an email exclusive that was just going in the newsletter um, that uh, was recapping the craziness just of last night. So we're recording this Wednesday afternoon. The Thunder blow out the Warriors. The Cavs blow a 18-point lead to the Magic. Um, the Celtics lose to the Raptors and don't look very good doing it. So now the East is a very, very tight race. Um, and that was before we could talk about anything that was happening tonight or in the next, you know, couple of days. And, and, and Porzingis tearing his ACL and the Lakers being the hottest team in the NBA. I mean, that's 24 hours ago. And it's only going to get – and then like Blake, like Blake Griffin – it feels like Blake Griffin got traded a year ago. Like Blake Griffin got traded. I still wrestle with this. I like wake up and I'm like, Blake Griffin got traded. Like the Clippers really brought him in and had him walk through a maze of his life and then had a mock ceremony retiring his jersey, gave him a five-year, nearly $200 million deal, and then traded him. Like that's something that happened last week. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, The Porzingis injury is obviously terrible. We just had so many, so many injuries to major players, just major guys are out right now. Team LeBron for the All-Star game has lost, I think, five guys. It's been absolute madness on that end. Um, the Lakers are red hot, even though they're recircling around 2019. Um, the trade market is bonkers, and nobody knows what the Cavs are going to do. Like, no one knows where the Cavs are at right now. It's, all right, so let's get, let's get a little organized. We'll break it down 
in, in a couple of team by team uh, fashions here for a second. Number one, I do want to talk about the Pistons. I find them to be fascinating. And the addition of Blake, even in the three games he's played there, he's looked really happy and the team has looked really good and connected. Is this all of a sudden a team that is sneaky contending? Like if you got money, are you putting money down on the Pistons for anything legitimate from a Eastern Conference perspective right now? Yeah, I think depending on the matchup, I mean, I, that's what I'm kind of looking at is like, all right, so, <clears throat> you know, they're only one game back of uh, in the loss column from being tied for the sixth seed. Like they can get as, as high as probably realistically four. They can make a run and, and get all the way up to four. They'll land somewhere between four and eight if they make it. Now, all the teams that are in in these spots, these are all really good teams. If you, if you look at the East, Washington, Milwaukee, Indiana, Miami, Philadelphia, Detroit, those are all good teams. Uh, Detroit had a really hot start and then completely fell apart and tailed off. They've had injuries. Blake's obviously given them new life. He and Drummond are meshing together so well. And that kind of front court pairing, if you get them versus some of the teams in the East, if you get them against Milwaukee, that's going to be playing John Henson and Thon Maker a lot, uh, unless they make a deal for DeAndre Jordan, which I'm hearing they're still very much in the mix for. Um, and they go up against Indiana, where Miles Turner is really good, but Thaddeus Young at power forward is undersized. Um, they could do damage there if they get up and they face it. Look, if they face Cleveland, I, I don't love that matchup just because they could tear them apart inside and pick and roll and, and be able to find guys. If they can knock down shots, that's a big key for them. I think there's a honeymoon aspect to this, but they're defending really well. I've been really impressed with Andre Drummond, who could have seen Blake Griffin coming in and been and, and go into a funk saying like, well, I guess I'm not the franchise guy anymore and getting really down on himself. But he's been fantastic. He has just been incredible. The passing for him this year is amazing. His free throw making is decent enough to where it's no longer a viable option to just foul him. And it's converting points per possession marks when they have to at a good rate. There's a lot going on with Detroit, and I don't think they're done. I think that they want to have one more guy on the wing, and if they can do that, they're going to be in a really good position, I think, for a run, and I'm going to be very interested to see what the what the line looks like for their series number, depending on where they line up, wind up in the matchups. Andre Drummond has very quietly become one of my most liked players in the NBA. He had a great line when he was named the, named the All-Star team, and I forgot some rookie was complaining about it, and he came out and basically just shut him down. Um, and the way he's handled the Griffin trade has been really interesting. Like, his just in watching, his body language is great. He is enjoying having him around. He's completely um, – he's not changing his game, but he's willing to tailor a little bit of his game uh, to accommodate what Griffin is doing and sort of his load and personality in terms of being the face of that franchise. It's been really impressive. Yeah, and with him, it's about consistency, and this has always been the thing with Dre, where, where you know, his rookie season, he came out and was so much better than we expected after UConn. He had a really bad reputation coming out of the draft as a guy that may not just love basketball, and they just didn't know where he was going to be. He was labeled as like a head case, and I saw that when I did the film work on him and was like, he just disappears at times, and he was great that first year, and so we set this new kind of bar, but over the next two seasons— Next three seasons, really, it settled into the same routine, which is he would just vanish for long periods. And it really frustrated the team and especially frustrated his coaches. And Sam Van Gundy wouldn't put up with it. I mean, he's been benched routinely in situations where he just vanishes completely. And that's a problem. But he's he was still so young and he's working past that now. And if you add in the consistency that he's bringing, the presence that he has physically and his passing ability, which we really did not realize what he was capable of until this year, it's a completely different dynamic. Detroit struggles to score. So having a guy that can attract the attention of the defense and pass like that is just it's huge for them. Drummond has absolutely been an all-star, having a terrific season. And if they make the playoffs, he's going to be a problem for some team to handle. All right. So if we're talking mid-season, be on the lookout, post-all-star break, heading into the playoff values, let's put, let's put the Pistons – let's just put the Pistons on our list. They are on the list right now as a team you're going to want to pay attention to and might get a little bit of action plus money because there could be value. Um Another note you had in the newsletter today, sign up for it, actionnetwork.com. Uh, let's talk about the Lakers. Let's talk about the Lakers winning 6-7. Let's talk about them being one of the hottest teams in the NBA. They're not a dumpster fire. They're not going to make the playoffs, but they're they're stretching for that eight. Um, what's going on there? 
This is the one I found, uh, the stat that I found that was really shocking. So the Lakers are closer to being the eight seed in the West than the Cavs are to being the one seed in the East. They are closer to being in the playoffs than the Cavs are to getting the number one seed. God, um, which so many bad things about the Cavs. It just says so many bad things. Um, I am still really skeptical on the Lakers, and I would I would want to fade them in the second half of the season. Um, I think that they're having – I've seen this where all bad teams will have about one to one and a half good months where they play sustained, consistent basketball. It's usually in the middle of the season, and what happens is they catch good teams that are tired and not looking up. They catch injury-plagued squads. They catch bad teams on back-to-backs, et cetera. They've beaten some good teams. The OKC win was great. That was a great win for them. They're playing well. A lot of it is that they're playing well in capacities where it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to be good. Like They've been good defensively, and there's no reason this team should be good defensively. They have too many liabilities who are young for them to be there. So I'm really skeptical of how this is going to look. The other thing is, like, what happens when Lonzo comes back? Because there's a simple answer that says Lonzo was good. They have a better net rating with Lonzo on the floor than off. So if you add him, everything is good. Well, we don't know about the dynamics. And if they've discovered something during the stretch that's working, inserting a guy like that could mess with the whole dynamic. And we just don't know what that's going to look like. I'm not saying that they'll get worse. It just seems like it's it's possible that we don't know what the result is going to be. The other thing to keep an eye on is the trade deadline because they have burned a lot of bridges with Julius Randle. Like that situation is pretty far gone. Um, and I think for both sides, letting him out would be best because I don't think that they're going to want to pay him this summer. And if they don't pay him this summer, he's obviously gone. So you want to get value for him now. And with the kind of teams that are out there that are looking for, you know, we want X, Y, Z. And if the picks aren't coming through, because picks right now are in a really nebulous place on the trade market, I can see Randle getting moved uh, and that's I think is going to impact them in a big way because he's been really good for them. There's a lot of promise there. I think Brandon Ingram has taken huge steps forward. I think Luke Walton is getting better as a coach. I like um, the way some of their young talent is playing. Kuzma's obviously really good offensively, at least. Um, but I have a lot of doubts about the sustainability of this, and I want to know what happens when Lonzo gets back. All right. Um I want to talk about the Raptors and the Celtics, and we got to spend a little – it's always weird to talk about the East because at the end of the day – what does it matter, right? Like they're going to get to the finals and have to play the Warriors and then they're going to lose. And so if we're looking at it from a future value perspective, we can get all excited about the Raptors at 16 to one, but does it really matter if they're going to end up having to play the Warriors? You know what I mean? Like the Raptors are great and they're, they're playing really well right now, but what are you getting excited about if you know they're going to have to play someone from Golden State in the finals. Well, I think your bet there is you want to play the Raptors to win the East. That that's where you want to go with those numbers. And um, I know that they were still getting they were getting considerably better numbers than the Celtics numbers. Like the Celtics are pretty much the favorite in the Eastern Conference outside of the Cavs. The Cavs last time I checked, I have to update those and, and take a look from Westgate where they're at. But for me. Like the Raptors are a great bet to win the Eastern Conference. We saw last night, they absolutely waxed Boston. And they're now split 1 1. But Boston's playoff formula is a little bit sketchy. They got young defenders playing at a really high level, but their offense is absolutely dreadful. They need guys who are not shot makers to make shots, and they need young guys in clutch. Tense situations to deliver, that's going to be problematic. Kyrie Irving's offense is very easy to scheme for in a playoff environment. It's impossible to stop, but it's easy to scheme for. And that allows you to stay home on the other guys. So when you look at Toronto, Toronto hits you about a million different ways. you got to make sure that Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, both of those guys don't go off because either one can go off for 40. As bad as they are in the playoffs, either one can step up and have a big game. Their bench is probably, in my opinion, maybe the best in the NBA. And it's a bunch of guys who no one's ever heard of. I mean, it's Fred Van Vliet out, out of uh, Wichita State. It's, you know, Jakob Pertle out of Utah. It's all of these guys, young dudes, but they give such great energy. They, they play up and down. They run you out. They have a really good formula. They have versatility in lineups. The Raptors, I think, are a great bet to put in for the Eastern Conference Championship just because if you look at how bad Cleveland is, and if you get to the point where you're just like, there's no coming back from this. And I think that they're there then you start looking at the field. If you're going to pick a team out of that, you're not just going to fade the Cavs with the field, which is what I think is I wrote about that a few weeks ago on Action Network. That's a great play. But 
For me, it's Toronto, and I think Washington are the two value bets that I think you can get good money on with their capacity to have a better playoff performance than we've seen. You had a great note in one of your columns uh, a few weeks ago about Mar DeRozan is having such a great year because of some of the help he's getting on pick and rolls from guys like Fred Van Vliet. Um, I thought that was such a nuanced and smart observation. Explain what you were talking about there. Yeah, so like in clutch situations, it's pretty great. What they do is they run out three-guard lineups with Lowry, Van Vliet, and DeRozan, with DeRozan at the three. And what you're able to do then is, you know, teams are scheming for that Ibaka pick-and-roll, or if they're playing Valanciunas, the, the Valanciunas pick-and-roll, or Siakam or whoever. They're all schemed up for the big, so they can switch it or do whatever. But if you run them off of a guard, guard point guards are more likely to make tactical mistakes and calling out switches than bigs are because they have to do it over and over and over again wings and wings and bigs are the ones that are always calling out switches and coverages on picks and so guards aren't used to it so when you use that guy as a screener and you got demar Derozan coming off the edge you want to make sure to get the ball out of Derozan's hands so a lot of times the defender is coming off and attacking Derozan, and if it, even if they're switching that guy's usually a big who's worried about the back cut so he's backing off of van vliet which means van vliet's got the spacing and if they stay home, then DeRozan's got one-on-one, and it's barbecue chicken time. It's a really great kind of tactical adjustment that they're able to make in terms of – we see this a lot. The Warriors started this, where if you're able to use your guards effectively as screeners, you can cause absolute mayhem. And I think doing that in clutch time situations, because everyone's so used to, okay, DeMar's going to isolate, and he's going to take a mid-range jumper. But he's not doing that this year. He's operating as a playmaker. He's operating as a, as a three-point shooter. He's a lot more versatile and dynamic in how he's playing, which is why I legitimately think that DeMar DeRozan belongs. He's not the leader. That's pretty sad this point james harden but demar Derozan is a hundred percent in the mvp conversation well they're such an interesting team you mentioned their bench but which nobody knows but um they're an interesting team because demar Derozan, like he's committed to that franchise in that city in a way you would not expect someone to commit when they've struggled in the playoffs and he's from la and had the opportunity to sign anywhere as one of the you know probably top 10 players you know year after year in the NBA, what do you think makes that that team click? Why do they bond so well? They're a really interesting case of um, you lay a foundation, you make a few gambles, and you hope it works out, but you got to lay that foundation. If you make the gambles and they work out, but you don't lay that foundation, it's going to fall apart. And if you don't get lucky, it doesn't matter the foundation you lay, it's going to go to pieces. Um, what was crazy about, about that team was when they were bad, uh, and I, I actually talked to DeMar when they were bad back in, I think, 2011 um, was when I talked to him. And DeMar, it was 12, it was 2012. DeMar, you know, loved Toronto. Like, he had embraced being the guy. He took that that responsibility more seriously than some other guys do. Some other guys are like, I'm a great player. I deserve the money. Yeah, I'm the best player. But it wasn't about I'm the player for this city. It's I'm the best player on this team. It's about that guy. And that's okay. Guys had different approaches to their careers. But DeMar wanted to be a franchise icon. That was evident very early on. You heard that. And he formed really strong bonds with teammates. So much so that guys like Ed Davis that got traded to Memphis never got over it because they were too emotionally invested in what that young core was doing that was what was really crazy is like ed davis would, would have been happier in toronto which was a garbage team at the time than in memphis where they were a playoff squad and they wanted to look to him as to be kind of the successor to zebo um that's how close that 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 locker room dynamic was and that stuff matters lowry goes there and DeRozan finds a guy who's just as talented and they just click. And what's crazy is like Lowry's reputation has always been like he's a hothead and he's difficult to work with and he's a prickly personality. Now that's cooled over the years as he's gotten older and had kids, but in the beginning it was like really rough. But he and DeRozan clicked right away and being able to rely on one another, I think it helps that they were both kind of the same level of player. Where it was like really good could be the best player on a bad team, but we don't know how if they could be a, the best player on a good team. And you put them together, and then playing at the same level, I think really put them in, in a position to succeed. Um, and that's why it, it's really remarkable. It's a cool story that doesn't get enough credit. That DeRozan, you know, all of this we talk about Masai Ujiri and Kyle Lowry and what they've done, and, and Dwayne Casey's underrated, but 
you know, DeRozan, not just for his on-court stuff, but for the way that he took over his role and embraced that from a cultural perspective, I think that needs to be talked about more as a real, as a really great thing that he's done. Why do you say Washington as one of the better values? They are such a better playoff team. So there are, I always look at when I'm evaluating the regular season at this point in my 10th year, I am looking for two things. What's your win loss profile? Because that determines whether or not you make the playoffs. Do you beat good teams? Do you beat bad teams? Do you get a mix? Are you inconsistent? How do you do versus versus schedule wins? Uh, how do you do when you're injured? All of those type of things. But the other thing I look for is formula. If you go into a playoff series and you say, to beat this team, regardless of matchups, we got to do what we do well, which is where all coaches start. And if your formula is something that, that I can look at and say, that's sustainable, it can work in a playoff environment, it's, they've got a, a solid foundation. It can be consistent. They're not subject to whim or, or fortune. I can believe in this team. Washington's formula has always been really good because it's elite-level talent that executes well together. They have a lot of problems right now. They're, they lost last night to the, to the Sixers, but they were red-hot before. But that was coming off of Wall's injury, and there's been so many comments. I, I, okay, I haven't heard anything from Washington. The word around the league is that things are pretty bad in the locker room between Beal and Wall. That could be exaggerated. That could be blown out of proportion. And that's what one person inside Washington did say. It was like, that's blown out of proportion. But they had tension two years ago, and then they had a great season last year, and it went away. And now we're seeing this again. So if they're if they're like chemically combustible, that messes with things. But a little bit of tension helps a lot of teams. Like those Lakers Kobe's teams, not to compare the two, because obviously the Lakers Kobe's teams were a lot better. But that Kobe Shaq dynamic, healthy tension. Like the Warriors have a healthy tension with Draymond. There's got to be a little bit of that, I think, for some teams to drive them. And Washington has always been better in the playoffs than they are in the regular season because they are better at finding mismatches and exploiting them and punishing teams and playing in an emotional environment than running out the suns on a random Tuesday in February. They'd be a great team if they could figure out how to do both. But as it stands, Washington's still in the fourth seed. They're probably going to be a top six seed at worst. And I really like the value on what they can do in the playoffs when you look at the kind of teams that they're going to be facing. Like Washington is one of those teams where can their coach handle the talent and combustibility? Is that a is that something that becomes sort of a fatal flaw for them? No, this is what I've always been kind of driven crazy by this. There are a lot of coaches that you put in charge of the Thunder. They don't make three Western Conference finals in five years. I don't understand where this narrative comes from because I'm like, look, did the Thunder win because of Russell Westbrook and and Kevin Durant and not Scott Brooks? Sure, absolutely. But a lot of of managing top-level talent to me is harder than getting a bunch of guys that are tryhards that are just like role players, getting them to play together because those guys don't have egos you have to manage. You're not juggling politics. And Scott Brooks was able to get that team to three Western Conferences in finals in five years, one finals appearance, and the two years he missed, Kevin Durant was out and Russell Westbrook was out. When he has been, like, when he has coached teams, they make at least the second round like they did last year. They would have made the Western Conference Finals or the Eastern Conference Finals last year had Kelly Olynyk not had literally his career best game. Um, Scott Brooks is, is a really good coach. I don't think he's done a good job, as good a job this year. But I think that he's a guy that what you want is you want a coach that could be like, look, okay, you have all this beef. You have all this nonsense. I don't care. Let's stay focused. Do you want to win this game or not? And the answer with competitors is always yes. Then let's stay focused on what we got to do. Like, he can't fix Beal and Wall. The idea of, of guys being able to do that, I think, is a myth. Like, Phil Jackson managed it better than most, but his situation was blessed by kind of the dynamics of Jordan, where there was a clear hierarchy. I think Scott Brooks has done a fantastic job in, in what he's done in Washington. And again, he's a guy that I look at and say, like, I don't have worries about him in a playoff environment. Is he going to do everything perfect? No, but I like the big picture when I look at Scott Brooks. God, that is a great analysis. So um, we need to spend two minutes on the Warriors because I don't think we're going to get to every single team that I want to get to. You're going to have to come back um, maybe maybe next week uh, as sort of an all-star version of this. But uh, what is going on with the Warriors right now? Is this just a classic, this team is fried, as Steve Kerr said, before the All-Star break, or is there something more systemic going on here? So, I'm always on the lookout for is the narrative 
um, honest. So like with the Cavs early on, I was one of the big jumpers off of the ship where I was like, this is a problem. And everybody's like, ah, they always do this. They'll be fine. I was like, they have never been this bad. Like, this is a new team with new problems. This is a whole new deal. Um, with the Warriors, I can honestly say I saw them up close on on Saturday in Denver. Talked to the players, was in the scrums of the players and coaches, saw them on the floor, the body language, the whole thing. This team's bored. And the biggest thing is that for three years – they lived to just kill everyone. They thrived on the Suns are down 25. We're putting Steph and Clay back in the game and we're running it up to 40. We're up 40 on the Thunder. We're going to see if we can get it to 60. Like we're going to laugh and taunt and dance and everything. And they lived for that. The thrill's gone. It's no longer exciting to beat Denver, even though Denver has, been, has played them tough the last couple of years. It's no longer rewarding to beat down OKC. That's not to say that OKC didn't play well last night. They did. And it's not to say that there aren't legit issues with the Warriors. Their bench is bad. For the first time, I think we can say in the Steve Kerr run, the Warriors have a bad bench. David West and Andre Iguodala are too far past. They've, they've gambled on Nick Young and JaVale McGee because, well, it's kind of a heat check. And the young guys are not as good as maybe they thought they were in Patrick McCaw and Jordan Bell is still inconsistent. So there are weaknesses, especially in a regular season matchup. But Draymond Green is just simply not there. That's why he's picking up Texan and getting ejected. Like, he literally said, like, he said, F this game, without the F. He said, F this game during after a bad call that he didn't like in Denver. That's where he's been at. His head is just somewhere. They are just trying to get to the All-Star break. It's not going to be much of a rest for them, but the couple days after, go get a mental break, get some body rest, and then come back and finish it out. They'll get some more rest days as the season goes on. I have zero worries about the Warriors making the, the finals. Um, I think right now, though, it's a great opportunity for teams. I mean, we see this all year. They haven't been great against the spread. They, had, they started off really badly. They came back up. They're starting to fade again. We saw again last night with a double-digit spread where they, where they, were, they obviously not only <laughs> didn't cover but lost badly. Whenever they're big favorites, I think you can fade them accurately at this point just because their level of caring about winning those games is so low. God, that is a great note. Bookmakers are not recognizing that because the general public is always going to be betting the Warriors no matter what the number. So that that is something to watch for right there. Matt Moore bringing it, bringing A-level analysis to the buffet and the Action Network. It's what I do. Nice job, buddy. Thanks, Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for, uh, man, the amount of work you are doing and the, what you are producing is insane. People need to go to the Action Network. Uh, they need to sign up for the newsletter. They need to go to actionnetwork.com to get your stuff. They need to follow you at Hardwood Proxism. They need to follow you at Matt Moore. Uh, it's T-A-N, right? Yep. At Matt Moore, T-A-N. Uh, where they can read all your stuff because you'll tweet out the links, as will I, as will Action Network HQ. Keep it up, brother. Let's Thanks, talk man. Again sooner rather than later. Thanks. Talk to you later.